Hello, and welcome to The Insurgents. My name is Rob Rousseau. And I'm Jordan Ewell. <laughs> and all I can think about right now is yeah, what Hillary Clinton must be thinking right now. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> I, would, I would love to see you get Hillary. You get Elizabeth Warren. You get Stop. Kate McKinnon. Stop it. <laughs> Put Go him on off. a stage, baby. No, just let him let him get a couple, of, maybe a couple of glasses of white wine flowing, oh and just my just sit back and sip the tea. Ooh, <laughs> baby! I, 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 Shut up saucy. and take my money. That <laughs> oh my god, get me there now. I need to see that. Yeah, and listen, hey, Bernie Bros. <clears> sorry. <throat> Uh, what did we tell you, right? You weren't nice. Mm-hmm. You weren't nice to everybody. You weren't. You didn't say please and thank you when you were talking about, uh, you know, dying from lack of insulin mm-hmm. and being crushed by medical debt. You weren't nice about it. And this, we tried to tell you. Hillary warned us, right? Go off. This is what happens. Yep. Ooh, I'm just thinking right now, man. How great it's going to be when no millennials show up in November. Yeah. That, oh. that is the movement I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> the joke is going to be on them when they do not, uh, they do not vote for Joe Biden. There's going to be so much egg on their face. Oh, my God. My goodness. This, there's just some things you're going to look back. You're going to be on your deathbed. And you're going to be thinking about where you were in this moment and what you did. And let me just say this. As someone who has been kissing the boots of the rich and powerful for years, you are going to regret sitting this out. You are going to regret not being the person who was telling all your friends that Joe Biden is woke, y'all. Like that, you could be that person. And if you sit that out, that's your, that's your, you're going to live without the rest of your life. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when we enter into late stage uh, ecological breakdown in the climate crisis and we're all just, you know, at each other's throats in the streets over cans of tuna and, uh, you know, trying to run a siege on your neighbor's house to get their fresh water. (laughs) I'm just going (laughs) to I'm just going to remember hashtag bye bye, Bernie. Gaslighting, though, is just so nuts. It's it, it just like the, uh, you, you should have been nicer. Like, you, this is, you guys did this. Which, why are you voting like that? Like, why are you letting that impact your voting decisions? That's really bizarre. You don't have to be on that website. If you don't enjoy it, you can just go to another website uh, that you refuse to leave and then demand everyone do things your way. Otherwise, you're not voting for the candidate who will support universal health care really bizarre um but i think people just get kind of like lost in the sauce and they just get really full of themselves and, and lose sight of what's really important um and it's certainly not cozying up to power at least in my book yeah 
And, well, no, I mean, I've been pointing this out for a while now, but I mean, it should be clear to, I think, everyone that pays attention to this endless discourse about mean online comments is that this only go- this criticism only goes in one direction. It only applies to one group of people. It only applies to one candidate. No one complaining about it actually cares about any of this stuff. If they do, they're completely fucking delusional that they think, like, the discourse that happens on, on Twitter.com and people not being nice enough about... about you know, talking about politics or advocating for stuff. They think that this has any impact, um, but really it's a way for powerful people to, uh, it, to justify not actually supporting the, the progressive policies that they claim to be, a, they, they claim to want. They claim to want that kind of stuff. Uh, the Bernie Sanders movement has exposed this kind of contradiction that, well, this, this is on the table now. We can actually fight for this stuff. We can actually ask for it. I've got a big movement here. A big movement being being powered by young people and first-time voters and immigrants. We can ask for this stuff. Well, ultimately, at the end of the day, the folks that use this argument about Bernie Bros to justify um, not supporting it, it's just because it gives them a convenient excuse to uh, not actually fight for any of the stuff that they've been telling us for years. They they believe in and they're passionate about, um, and. It's uh, it's been fucking ludicrous, Jordan, over the last couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah. Um, as this primary has started, and it's just been, I I still remain shocked by it that this was kind of the play, the the Bernie Bros thing, mean online supporters. Uh, this is what they went with, and it, amazingly, it stuck in people's minds, and there are people that now are like I think that like some of them are just disingenuous. Some mm-hmm. people I think actually believe that this is the reason that that we're living through the result we're seeing now. Yeah, they they uh they have convinced themselves that this this had a causal impact on the outcomes, which is just so far-fetched. There's no correlation. There. I I mean there's probably no even correlation there let alone a causation. And there was a Harvard researcher who looked at big sample sizes of every candidate supporters and found that the tweets that were likely to be negative in the Bernie camp were no different statistically than any other candidate you're going to get the same around proportion of negative people in every camp um so yeah this 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 idea that it was a unique a problem unique only to bernie is so far-fetched and it, it reminds me that like this was an effort that the clinton camp pushed in 2008 there's i think yep. a salon article about the the obama bros that they tried then. the obama boys yeah yeah and they tried it in 2016, and there was a couple reporters who, I think in 2016, had talked about how they might be a little bit more receptive to pitches they were getting about that narrative if it didn't literally come from the Clinton camp. And then going forward, people just repurposed it and and just continued and carried it on. And, you know, it was just given credence by the media and different candidates, and it's just... We lose sight, to, we lose sight of what's really important, because when you have these moments where people are pointing to that as the reason why a candidacy uh, starts to sputter and why you are justifying someone who is less progressive, um, you lose sight of the bigger picture. You're missing the, for- you're missing the forest for the trees because th- what Biden's campaign represents is 10 million people or more remaining uninsured. And that could be life or death for people because there are tens of thousands of people who die every year from lack of health insurance. And when you're posting like epic clapback resistance gifts when when Bernie sputters, 
and cheering on Joe Biden, that's also what you're cheering for because that's a re that's a harsh reality for people. And whether that impacts you or not is 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 really telling. Because if you're willing to overlook what happens to other people out of some weird 2016-related spite campaign, I mean, ultimately, you're telling on yourselves. Yeah, well said, Jordan. Um, I agree. And we, we do have to talk about uh, what we're faced with covering this campaign. <laughs> this whole, We're on episode nine of this show, and it has been a fucking roller coaster. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't feel bad I think for for getting a bunch of stuff wrong over the course of just the short course of doing this show because I feel like uh every pundit got this wrong. Uh we started with Bernie on this unprecedented run of of winning these early states and you know the national polls were flipping. Biden looked dead in the water. I mean it felt to everyone and not just me and you, not just the activists and not just the people in the party. Um, but you could see in the establishment and the media people, they saw what was happening as well. And it really felt like it was happening. So I don't, I don't feel too bad about getting that wrong. Uh, you know, I do my punditry from the heart, Jordan. So <laughs> gonna, uh, I intend to keep doing that. And, you know, when it comes to punditry, I learned from the greats, right? The Kalizas, the Chuck Todds, oh. the, the, the giants, you know, do these, do these guys ever admit that they got anything wrong? Did they ever adjust their, their insight or their analysis or their way of thinking? No. So I don't intend to do that either. Um, yeah, I mean, you're talking like the ninety, the ninety-five bulls of punditry. Sorry. Yes. I, <laughs> yes. Delete but that. we do have to acknowledge that um, things have changed a lot just over the last ten days. It's basically been a one hundred and eighty degree flip. Uh, it was another bad night last night uh, for the Bernie Sanders campaign. He's definitely Joe Biden now is has taken control of this campaign. It's been like a completely like it's basically been an unprecedented reversal um and that's what i'm talking about the the narratives from just a couple of weeks ago i think that's part of the reason that it was so easy to get caught up in this is because when you're thinking about it like it's a traditional election and that traditional sort of rules and storylines apply you see bernie's got those early states any other in any other situation the democratic party then co is going to coalesce around that person the media narrative is going to say this is the guy with momentum and, you know, in, in hindsight now, yeah, it was folly to think that this was just in a normal circumstance and that, that those, those normal circumstances were going to carry on like that because that's not what happened. And so, I mean, this whole Joe Biden thing has been like this distant iceberg for the last year. And it's been, it's been honestly amazing to, I've, cause I've spent a lot of time talking about this and, and, and writing about it over the last year, you know, we just started the show, but I've been kind of podcasting and doing this for a while now. And for this entire campaign, it's been really remarkable because I've just been saying for this whole year, the Democratic nominee cannot be Joe fucking Biden in 2020. <laughs> like, number one, like the people in the media and the Democratic Party establishment, they have the same eyes and ears that I do. They can clearly look at this guy and see what see what he has to offer and say, no, this is, he can't do this. He just can't physically do it. Um. And it's been really, really amazing over the last year to see this like audition process for the for the non-Biden Democrat and the sort of the media establishment has played along with that, the Democratic Party establishment, and everyone's gotten their turn in the sun. First it was Kamala Harris. Is oh she's the non-Biden candidate that's gonna that's gonna sweep through this thing. Okay, no, kind of faltered a bit. Now it's Beto O'Rourke, 
for a little while, it was like, let's try out Elizabeth Warren. Let's put her in that role and see how people respond. Uh, okay, maybe it's Pete Buttigieg. And <laughs> everyone that they kind of held up over this this insanely long and convoluted process, uh, is it going to be Cory Booker? You know, everyone that we thought was going to be like the successor has has stepped to the plate and struck out, basically. And it's been this year-long process where now, amazingly, the, established, the Democratic Party establishment <laughs> is just like they're looking at the field. They've seen that the, everyone they've tried to to put in this role has failed to uh, excite people, has failed to build any momentum. And they're just like, all right, I guess we're I guess we're going with this. <laughs> like it's been it's been very, very surreal to pay such close attention to this over the last year and see this like nightmare scenario very, very slowly approach until it's right there. And now it's like Joe Biden is like on his way. Uh, if current trends hold and we're going to get to that, to the Democratic Party nomination, it's it's fucking surreal, man. Yeah, I, I was thinking about this earlier, just the way the media ignored all of Biden's weaknesses and not even just like, yeah, I think the cognitive we thing should be, week. yeah, it should be like separate from like his policies and his voting record. Those are things that are just like objectively bad. And I think the cognitive thing is a little bit more of a subjective conversation, but like they never even scrutinized the former. They never no. talked about like his voting record. They never talked about his, his policies, proposals or lack, excuse me, lack thereof. Um, he was really like largely given a pass while Bernie was like hyper scrutinized, but like not because he doesn't really have as many bad votes as other people or bad policy proposals. They had to like dig back to like weird public access TV from Burlington, Vermont in the early eighties. Like, come on when you're going or to mean those tweets. great lengths and yeah, or, or that or supporters like behavior from like purported supporters when you're doing that and you're not looking at like the obvious flaws of someone who was in the fucking White House for eight years. Like, you, you, how how can you reconcile those two things and still, cons and still convince yourself that you're doing a good job? Yeah. And as we pointed out, too, that, that all his flaws have been hidden. Uh, they've not talked about. You mentioned the record. And, I, and even the, the cognitive decline stuff, which I think is pretty fucking important in the, when you're selecting the next president in the United States, even when people in the Democratic primary like tentatively approached that subject like Cory Booker or Julian Castro. They were like castigated by people and saying, oh, that's that's, like, you know, poor taste. And they were that, that's how that that conversation was treated. Uh, so that's what's been going on for the last year. And then that's been in overdrive since since Biden overperformed in South Carolina. That's just been complete overdrive. And it's been two weeks of Biden electable, electable, electable. And that's the only conversation they have. They don't they're not talking about any of the very the gigantic fucking red flags uh, in this candidate. Uh, they're not talking about that. But rest assured, anyone that's listening needs to fully understand that this magical aversion to discussing all these things about Joe Biden, the long, long history of being wrong on all these issues of fucking touching women inappropriately, all of this stuff, the media is going to very quickly forget about their aversion to talking about it the minute this primary is over, the minute it's a one-on race against uh, Donald Trump, the media is going to be more than happy to discuss all of this stuff endlessly. And I don't think 
the the liberals and the Democrats that are getting excited about Joe Biden and really think that he is electable, I don't think that they've reconciled uh, with this this basic fact that's going to uh, come into clear focus over the next couple of weeks and months. No, uh, not at all. And I think a lot of people are also refusing to accept or acknowledge the glaring flaw in his base. And you've got like if you I, the, the the graphic that came out last night. I don't know if you saw the New York Times generated it uh, of the primaries last night. The age demographics: seventy three percent of voters sixty five and older went to Biden, and eighty three percent of voters eighteen to twenty four went to Sanders, and eighty one percent of twenty five to twenty nine went to Sanders. Those are huge, disproportionate blocks that really have me concerned that the the millennials and the younger voters and the Gen Z folks, the Zoomers, aren't going to flip over to Biden because he has told them basically to shut up and stop complaining. He doesn't care. He doesn't. He got an F from Sunrise I Movement. I can quote from Joe Biden, literally said, I have no empathy. Those yeah. were his exact words talking That's, about these these exact people. I don't understand uh, what the path forward is. And I I am deeply concerned that the Democratic Party has not considered this and has not figured out a way to appeal to younger voters. And I think even what they might generate as some sort of concession to the progressive left uh, might not be seen as altruistic. And I think there's cause for concern. Uh, And I think people will be skittish. No. And we've seen this movie before. We don't like this is what happens every single fucking election with the Democratic Party. They ruthlessly crush any kind of left insurgency. And the insurgency that we've seen this year has vastly, vastly surpassed anything we've seen in the past. Um, But then they say, yeah, now shut up and and vote for our agenda. Mm -hmm. Um, We've seen in the past Democratic presidents like Bill Clinton or like Obama, too, extend these olive branches and these these little things like, oh, this is going to keep them happy. This strategy is not going to work this time. Like I'm seeing people in the Democratic Party saying like, oh, who's the who's the VP candidate that's going to excite the left? There's no one. There's no one that's going to heal this like extremely stark fundamental divide uh, that we're seeing develop right now. Right. Yeah. Barbara Lee would be like the only one that would get me super excited, but I don't see that happening. No, no, no I'm not sure I do either. And, I, and I'm not sure that really moves the needle in terms of the, the people that are really involved in the movement that's being built right now. Right. I'd want, so, so one th- really surreal thing that happened last night that was on the news, seeing people like Jake Tapper, for example, kind of start to grapple with this and looking at the numbers and being like, oh, shit, this is a problem. Like, this is going to be a huge problem for the Democratic Party in a general election. There is a very, very clear, stark divide here between the two segments of this base and what they each want. And you like it's not going to be resolved with with Joe Biden using like woke language or like talking. Does anyone does anyone really believe no matter what, like, quote unquote, concessions, a hypothetical uh, Biden candidacy makes to the left. Is he actually going to fight for any of that stuff? Is he actually going to follow through on it? We've all seen this a million times before. We know exactly what the playbook is. No one believes it anymore. And like there, it's, it's not a surprise that people are skeptical about this and they're disillusioned with the idea that the democratic party cares about them at all. That's, that's a normal feeling to have. Yeah. I mean that, that but all of this kind of segues perfectly into our conversations and this episode too, because 
like I think younger voters and progressive voters have a right to be concerned um, as you know people have pointed out of for years like in most recently in Ryan Grimm's we've got people the Democratic Party has done a rightward shift toward corporations for corporate power and towards like you know the wealthy and the powerful and that leaves the working class behind that leaves younger voters behind and turning a blind eye to the urgency around issues like climate change and health care and gun violence like that's that's how is I don't understand how it's going to motivate young people because younger voters are much more idealistic and that's great that we should center that because that's how we create like a, a just and robust like populist world so like I, I think the conversations that we have on this episode are really enlightening because we get a, a pretty good look at what young activists are doing and how they think and how they vote and things like that and also make the case for a multi-generational voting approach and that's not something we ever really hear we hear like I don't know. It seemed like taunting almost from like establishment yeah. folks and media folks about younger voters not showing up. It's like, oh, yet again, they don't show up. What? I mean, what, what choice did you <laughs> give them, man? <laughs> yeah. Well, and okay. And yeah, and we're going to get to our guests soon. Uh, but that does leave something that I wanted to talk about here. And that is the idea of of the primary being rigged, right? Quote unquote rigged. And that's kind of a loaded word, right? Because mm -hmm. I think when people think about that, they think of like backroom uh, ballots being destroyed and, and really, really shady stuff like that. And to be honest, given what we saw in Iowa, the very obvious uh, attempts to control that narrative via various, uh, you know, incompetence and and systemic failures like that. And then when you take that into account with with things like the discrepancy that we've seen in some cases with uh, exit polling data, with what the actual votes were, I don't want to just say that that nothing, nothing untoward happened. But let's just like, for the sake of argument, imagining this like this was completely above the board process and there was no weird, weird things like that going on. It's it's a loaded word rigged. But really what that I think is describing for a lot of people is this feel that it's this feeling that it's like going to the casino and playing against the house. Maybe it's maybe it is above the board. Some of these things they're doing, but what it is is these immensely powerful people wielding every lever of power that they have at their advantage, which is very, very significant to try and tilt the odds in their favor. And we've seen that with uh, like the obvious coordination between like campaigns and the Democratic Party and the media to create certain narratives over the last couple of weeks. And we've seen how much that has had an impact on polling and people's votes. Uh, you know, talking about there's a number of examples of this, but talking about the whole Biden electability argument, that's been the main uh, thread of that over the last few weeks. Uh, and then we things like the the immensely long lines in certain certain uh, communities like lower income communities and and for for students, all this kind of stuff, um, missing ballots in Texas and all these institutional like irregularities and stuff. Like it is just a profoundly undemocratic process. And I can see, you know, I can see why people are getting so frustrated uh, and so ready to just like give up on this process, frankly, because I mean, it's just what what possible reason do people have to believe that they can really meaningfully take on these establishment folks when they control the mechanisms that that run the elections and they control the uh, the media establishments that craft these narratives. Um, and that's something that I think people feel that. 
and whether it's whether it's above the board and it's just people using these institutional levers levers of power in order to to uh create the outcome that they want or whether there's shadier stuff going on which again i would i do not think i would ever want to rule out ultimately it's just like a disenfranchising process and it's it's intentionally designed i think to make people disengage from the process and feel like they can't hope to do anything and i like we're seeing the result of that it's really having this depressing effect on on people that are trying to engage with this process absolutely and when you when you are taking on something with systemic influence and power it's much more easy for that institution or entity to just flick its wrist with almost little to no effort to create these types of things that you laid out like you know long lines here and there uh just just difficulties getting to vote or shaping the narrative in the media there's so many people connected to the democratic establishment uh through various super PACs or organizations or think tanks or whatever who have you know prominent roles in cnn and msnbc or people who are married to like folks who work on campaigns, who write at newspapers, and just like all oh, this overlap, like this this seedy, smarmy overlap in DC, this beltway culture that people like Sanders have derided for years. That's what you don't typically see as the casual outside observer. So it's much more easy for the establishment to kind of propagate narratives and push forward people and convince you of this or that because you know, it's in their best interest to do that. So coming as an insurgent, an outsider candidate like Sanders was, so much was stacked against him. And while, yeah, it wasn't, it might not have been explicitly rigged, there are these types of things, these hurdles every step of the way that wouldn't impact anybody else who just keeps their head down and toes the, the party line. Um, it's just something that people really need to understand. There's so many different uh, connections and spheres of influence and, and money to be made in Washington that leave you out, that they do not care about you. And I think that's what people really need to understand. At the end of the day, they will throw you under the bus to get rich. They'll give you piecemeal things here and there uh, just to keep you satisfied. But at the end of the day, they're not fighting for systemic, uh, progressive, populist change that fights for the working class. Like they're just they're too close to corporate interests. It doesn't suit them. So that's people need to understand that for one. And the other thing I wanted to point out is that it benefits them when you do not pay attention and you do not act. And I realize all of these things, again, like are, are, are intended to demoralize you, to make you apathetic, and to make you just disconnect and disengage. Because when you do that, it's so much easier for them to just convince older voters or a reliable voting block to just vote their way, vote for the status quo, because it won't impact them. It will not impact them. They think everything is fine because they're fine. And it will not change anything about their material circumstances. So convincing them is really their winning strategy. So the when younger voters know that, uh, and when they get engaged, it, despite all of their best efforts, that's when we can actually make change happen. And that's why I'm really excited about the conversations we had in this yeah. episode today. And just b before we get to that, we've because we've, <laughs> we had a lot to get into here. Uh, I had a couple of rants I needed to get off my chest, obviously. Um, but everyone does need to uh, <laughs> come to grips with the idea that this is not over. It's not over. Um, Bernie Sanders right. uh, 
gave a state put out a statement today and did a press conference he's not dropping out of the race he is committing to go ahead with this debate and he's making the case like all the this generational divide we're talking about he's clearly expressing that like these people need to have their values represented the things that he's advocating for that people have put so much time and energy and money and effort into his campaign the things that they believe in this needs to be addressed in order for the democratic party to win the election against trump so he's going to go to this debate which i believe is on sunday and he's he's going to be raising this electability issue and trying to show and i think he will be able to successfully show that joe biden has zero answers for any of these major major problems that the people that are getting involved in the Bernie movement are trying to address, right? They're not they're not in this movement to try and score points on Twitter.com. They're in there because they know people that are dying because they have to ration their insulin. And they're they're know people that are not able to afford to go to get a home or have a family. Um or are just like living on the knife edge of of homelessness because of medical debt or student debt or anything like this. Like this is none of this is being represented uh in a, in a Biden administration, in a Biden campaign. And I think in this debate, Bernie will be able to uh, show people that Biden has no answers to these solutions. And there, I'm sure there are people in the media establishment or the Democratic Party establishment that even if they're completely cynical, even if they only care about their own power, uh, they do realize that they have right now a, a coalition that is not set up to win in 2020 and it's not set up to perpetually deliver victories in the future they're literally on the verge of really alienating forever this younger generation of people by signaling that their concerns don't matter to them um and i think people in the media that have kind of uh institutional power there or in the democratic party need to think long and hard about this like stark reality that's coming into view right now, this schism that's about to happen in the Democratic Party, uh, and think about ways they can meaningfully address that. And not that doesn't mean just like giving a token uh, of, of bone by some like a VP candidate or or some some dumb bullshit that what the Democratic Party always does in these situations. Uh, these things are going to have to be meaningfully addressed. I'm confident that there are people in the party that, as careerist as we might make them out to be, are fundamentally aware of this somehow. And this is, I mean, the final thing I'll say about this is that this whole Biden resurgence, it's been 100% driven by media narratives. And there's an opportunity right now to shift that narrative, to change people's perceptions of like who is electable in this race and who's not electable. Um, Bernie still has an opportunity to do that. And I think a big mistake that I've made and maybe we've made and, and a lot of people observing this this election have made is just kind of imagining that it's just like a, a regular American election and, and the traditional narratives apply and all these traditional things apply. I mean, Joe Biden's resurgence came out of nowhere. It's completely unprecedented. It flipped completely 180 in like a 36-hour period. Like, it can flip back. Everything is on the table right now. Uh, nothing is set in stone. And everyone that was that was demoralized last night and wants to quit and wants to just give up, and hey, I understand feeling bad after after what's gone down over the last week. I completely get that, but everyone needs to keep in mind that like now is the time to push even further for what you want and to keep demanding it, um, because otherwise this conflict is just never going to get resolved, 
and that's going to mean really bad things both for the the younger generation that's fighting for this this kind of change and for the the you know uh institutional uh sociopaths that are uh, controlling the levers of power right now uh it's kind of an un- unsustainable situation and uh definitely i think everyone needs to just keep pushing and keep going because it's not over and um just giving in and just saying well we tried and now that this election is over it's finished that is exactly what the people that are in charge of america want want you to do and you know nothing would make them happier than just to say okay well fuck it i mean this thing's finished um because it's not necessarily about this election anymore it's it's there's a big movement that's been built here that i think is going to snowball it's going to continue snowballing no matter what happens with this election and i do still think it's just so volatile right now. I think anything can happen and people just need to keep, keep pushing and keep fighting. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You can't, you can't give up. That's, that's it. My heart's like pounding here, Jordan. I'm 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 in a, I'm in a, all my synapses are firing (laughs) at like a, a thousand percent capacity right now. I think I'm in fight or flight mode. It's like the Canadian nice though. So despite all of that, you still sounded very peaceful. Cause honestly, Jordan, like I'm not trying to approach this stuff. As like, you know, trying to convince people to do anything or trying to be a a conspiracy theorist or a a doomsayer or anything like that. But there's a fundamental conflict coming into view right now. Like in in America, in the West, we're heading off a cliff. We're heading towards climate crisis and we can't like the time is running out. We can't just keep passing the buck back and forth between two different sides of the establishment that are not fundamentally changing anything. And yeah, I think probably a, a hypothetical Joe Biden administration would be slightly better than a Donald Trump administration for for a number of reasons. Yeah, I'll admit that. But ultimately, it's not the kind of fundamental change that America needs, that our whole like sort of concept of Western liberal democracies needs. It needs to be drastically reoriented. And the opportunity to do that is still there. And uh, people do just need to keep pushing for it. And I think, you know, I think I think our vision of the future can win because I think it's the more hopeful, it's the more positive vision. I'm going to continue believing that no matter no matter what continues to unfold in this election or in in uh, you know modern modern day uh, nightmare world in general. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, so so we've Agreed. got some young folks coming on the show uh, to speak to us now. These these interviews were recorded um, prior to the events of yesterday, so not totally caught up with. Um, with what we're talking about. So do you want to just introduce the guests and who we're having on here? Yeah, we've got Cameron Kasky from March for Our Lives and Isra Hersey from U.S. Climate Strike. So they will, you know, Zoomer activists will, they'll give us a rundown of issues they care about, what the, what they work on, what their organizations work on, uh, how they got into this, um, and, you know, what, what the future looks like on these issues and why, Again, as I mentioned earlier, like why we need to have a multi-generational approach when voting and considering these issues. Great. Well, uh, I think we're going to start off with Cam and then Israel will be joining the show after. So let's kick it over to, sorry, what's his last name? <laughs> Rob's close <Yeah>. friend. <laughs> but he's just, he's probably just taking some time to follow back. You know, he's busy. He's a busy guy. So are you upset about that? Yeah, that was a really passive-aggressive DM. <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, no pressure. Just, you know, he's busy. He's got a lot on his plate. I understand. Cameron, take your time. But we'll be back with Cameron right after this.
Barbarian, and you are listening to The Insurgents. This is the Broadway Reviews uh, portion of the show. It's a new segment. It's excellent. I strongly recommend it. Um, and yeah, so guys, let's hear. What's your, what was your favorite Tony nominee of 2003? <laughs> That's a, there are so many. Yeah, there are so just... many different ones that come uh-huh. to mind. That it's yeah. hard to narrow it down. Uh, so we got Cameron Kasky with us. Cameron, thank you for joining us. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> so, <laughs> we're so happy you're here. Clearly you are, too. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> we, we're, 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 we're talking about, in this episode, we're talking about youth activism, uh, issues Gen Z cares about, and why voters should center uh, youth concerns while voting. Um, so do you want to take a second and tell the listeners uh, who you are, what issues you're passionate about, and what issues you work on? Uh, my name is Cameron Marley Kasky. I'm from Parkland, Florida, which officially makes me this podcast's first Florida man. <laughs> congrats, congrats. Yeah, thanks so much, gang. Uh, after the shooting in Parkland, however many years ago, Jesus Christ, two years ago. I'm old now, guys. I'm, I'm going to be 20 in a couple months. You're close to retirement age. It's okay. Time has begun to distort for all of us in this, like, the <laughs> fucked up Trump news cycle era. To me, that feels like decades ago. So probably for you, it's even even weirder than that. It's this weird, weird, ugly feeling where you're like, oh, that totally just happened yesterday. And also, <laughs> you know, back in my day. But um, yeah, relatively recently... Um, at, we, we, we did March for Our Lives. We started it in my house uh, because my parents were away. My mother was on a trip, and she didn't have much access to the news or Wi-Fi or anything. So it was rather horrifying for her to discover the shooting via the news because she, she didn't really have her phone. And, you know, my brother was at school too, and he doesn't he, – he has special needs and, like, is not very – is not a hefty writer – so he doesn't text or anything. He wasn't able to say he was okay, but I was lucky enough to be with him during all that business. So uh, back when Joe Biden was VP, according to him. <laughs> I heard he heroically drove down there, actually, and was physically himself trying to protect the people there. Remember what Trump said? He would run in. Yes. 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 <laughs> was amazing. That's what makes me remember how long ago that was, was that like, I remember reading that. And it feels like forever ago that I saw Trump say, I would have been the first to run in. Oh, yeah. So then we did March for Our Lives. We got a lot of people to come to D.C. uh, to let the country know that, you know, we need to pass stronger gun laws, but we're not coming for your guns. And then Better O'Rourke said, we're coming for your guns. And I was like, oh, okay, dude. Uh, So that was cool. Or we can take that approach also. (laughs) We could do that one, too. You know, I just... Spent a lot of time looking directly into the eyes of people in open carry states who had the weapon that was used at my school in their hands telling me to come take it. And, uh, you know, I spent all that time saying, we are not coming for your guns. And then Beto was like, hell yeah, we're coming for your guns. And I was like, okay, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe that's, uh, that's all right. If that's how you want to do it. Helpful. Thank you. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's, that's something kind of interesting that's going on in the current primary because now you have Beto endorsing. Biden and I feel like that's now it's not so much a storyline right this second but if Biden does manage to win this nomination that's going to become a major major storyline 
uh, in this election. And they're going to like, like Republicans always accuse Democrats of coming to take their guns, but this time they're going to have kind of a credible argument uh, against it, which is going to be right. going for a mandatory buyback of assault weapons, which I just need you to run through in your head, a mandatory buyback of assault weapons. What in God's name are you talking? Look, optional buyback. I completely get it. Makes sense. Offer the people who have these weapons of war in their hands a chance to sell it back, get as many as we can off the streets, game over. You know, people say that more guns make this country a safer place, and, you know, they don't seem to realize there are more guns than people in this country. If there, if more guns made us safer, we'd be the safest country in the world, and our gun yes. violence numbers are comical compared to everybody else. So we'd say to these people, you know, we're banning these weapons, we're getting them off the streets, we're, we got to stop it, uh, you know, sell them to us, please, por favor. You know, there's there is a, a the, you know there there's such thing as the government not coming to your door and taking your things. Yeah. But anyway, a mandatory buyback is us saying sell it to us now, which is like, I mean, to be fair, it's it's a little bit sweeter than a confis like a mandatory confiscation where we just come take it. It's like here we're taking this and we're giving you money for it. it's. America's done that with a lot of things before, and generally speaking, yeah. it's not very nice. Normally, mandatorily buying something from somebody is basically just taking it from them and giving them money and saying that it was a sale. <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, whatever. It's cool, Beto. Thanks, dude. Thank you, Beto. Very cool. I just want to point out, Rob, it literally is a storyline right now, though, because yes, at yeah. that auto plant in Detroit, <laughs> someone asked him about that. And Joe Biden not only got incredibly mad and was like telling him he's like a horse's ass and told him off and like threatened to fight him or something but he also got the name of the guns wrong you don't understand what it's like to uh to be in a community that has been attacked by a gunman with an ar6 <laughs> yeah which is the sixth version of the assault See, normally rifle. this is right up my alley normally i would find this really funny but the, in the current context i'm just like depressed about it right right so i don't want to derail the conversation i'm just saying it is happening right now because because beto is he's biden had said that beto is going to run his gun policy and Beto has that comment, like, yeah, we're going to take your guns. So what else are su people supposed to think? No, it was not yeah. yeah. It was hell yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry. Because Beto is, Beto is part of this new generation of politicians that I'm actually really excited about, which is that it's really cool if we curse. Oh, yeah. It's like, hey, this is fucked up. And in all fairness, it is fucked up. And I actually... Yeah. His whole this is fucked up speech about those shootings I, really connected with me. Yeah, I, I actually like that too. Yeah, but like, oh, dude, he said fuck whoa dude sometimes yeah. i say fuck <laughs> that's how you know it's serious it's relatable but no again so like that whole hell yeah we're taking your f-15s look i i would love it if we could take them all away i really would i want them gone man i want them out of here out the door send them over to you know drop them all in the ocean no that's polluting never mind <laughs> Get rid of them. Send them all to the Phantom Zone from Superman 2, the director's there cut, not the Richard Donner, yeah. the Richard Donner cut specifically. Um, but, but you know, it's 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 it's, it's these we're 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 living in the establishment's America, bro. It's fun. But yeah, so I do the gun control stuff, and you know what? People people don't like saying gun control over here in the gun violence prevention movement, and I get it because gun control is a term that's been co-opted by the right, and the word control implies big government and everything. But you know, generally speaking, when something's out of control, I think it should be controlled, and I think that it's very very hard to say, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, that gun violence 
is under control. So I like gun control. I like saying, and I also like, I also like it when we do it. And, you know, a lot of laws have passed on a local level recently that have been really exciting. A lot of great state laws, a lot of great, you know, a lot of examples of local organizing being super effective. The only problem is, uh, no matter what your local law is, it's only going to be as strong as federal laws with guns. And you see that in cities like Chicago, because, you know, Illinois has all these, you know, sexy ass gun laws that are really strong, but, all these guns still end up on the streets there, and gun violence is perpetuated there still, and it's because, and we've I've spoken to just so many people in Chicago who will tell you the same thing, people drive over to Indiana, they buy the guns in bulk, and they sell them back. So, you know, you can pass these strong laws that would make states like Illinois a lot safer, but when you can go over to Uncle Indiana and have Mike Pence sell you some, sell you all these weapons, you can go and sell them back, you know? Yeah. yeah. And that's and then like anytime you bring up gun control, Chicago is always the first argument you hear back. We're like, well, look at the Chicago. I mean, you have strong gun control laws and all this gun violence. And then that's basically the end of the conversation. Um, but I think you're, you're touching on something that makes this this particular uh, strain of activism, I, I imagine, so difficult and frustrating because I think like anyone that looks at America can clearly see that there's a problem with gun proliferation. Obviously, there's a there's a massive, massive problem uh, with gun violence. It's become this huge uh, public health crisis. But finding a a real solution to that uh, seems like it's just so difficult because it's it's like ingrained in this certain aspect of American culture that people really, really believe in. And even when you bring in, I mean, you talked about, you know, the 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 uh, the ways that that Beto framed things, the kind of unhelpful ways are when you try and be more productive. But I mean, even if you try to make the most bare minimum suggestion for like, maybe we can try to do something. It just gets met with this fury and this outrage by these people that are just ready to just like go and start blowing people away. Uh, they think that that armed agents of the state are going to come to their house and start and start grabbing their stuff. And it's just, I imagine it's really difficult to try and figure out a path through that and a way to cut through all that noise and actually speak to some of these people who might be affected by it um, because it's just so highly charged that it's, it's, I can't imagine how uh, difficult it must be to be able to find a, a, a way through that. Well, you know, guns are just such an exciting issue for a lot of politicians because I think a lot of politicians are under the impression that voters vote on guns a lot more than they do when at the end of the day, that's just not the case. Look, I mean, I think the problem with how we approach gun violence in this country specifically is not that it's the largest and most dire issue in our country, because I think it's statistically impossible to say that. But what it is, is the most American, the most violent, and also the most solvable, which is really what makes a lot of the inaction we've seen over the past couple decades so unnerving is look, not as many people are being killed with guns every year than they're being killed on the road. Not as many people are being killed with guns every year than they're being killed by medical accidents. And, you know, people, all these people are dying from lack of access to health care. It's hard to say that gun violence is the number one issue our country faces. But in my personal opinion, which take it or leave it, I, I don't even know how to read. The, in my personal opinion, it's, again, the one with the clearest path in the sense of, you know, there is a very, very obvious answer here and people are ignoring it. Now, again, that's just a perspective thing, but the fact of the matter is people, politicians get really excited about how strong their gun laws are going to be, but it's just not an effective campaign tool. We saw that with Beto. We saw that with Eric. We saw it with a lot of people. 
uh, Eric Swallow, that being, there are a lot of candidates out there who have great policies across the board, but a focus on guns does not get people moving or voting. And that's very unfortunate, especially since in my generation, especially, you can go into Matt, who, who was not nice enough to show up today because he's pretentious. He and I can go into a room and we'll talk to 500 people, young people our age, whether or not they're organized, activated, or just people who are sitting in a class and listening to us because they have to. We'll ask, we'll say, raise your hand if you know somebody who's been affected by gun violence. And I mean, almost every hand goes up in lower income communities. And then in more privileged communities, you're going to see a lot of hands up. You're going to see a lot of people who know people who have been affected by this. And again, we just look at the issue as something that should be so solvable. The, le the legislation has been written. You know, Feinstein has it framed in her office. It's, it's, it's depressing to see how little action is being taken. And the fact of the matter is, I know a lot of Biden people are campaigning off of this bullshit notion that because Bernie has bad gun votes, he's not going to be passing strong policy as president. I think that that's tired and ugly and old and vitriolic and bitter, that notion. You know, mm -hmm. there there's just not compare, especially compared to Uncle Joe, there are just almost the, the amount of instances of Bernie saying he's going to do something and not doing it versus you know just wearing something that we might not like on his sleeve you know uh, Ber bernie bernie has rough votes on guns but he also never said he wasn't gonna so what's let's follow that a little bit so what's your argument against it you're a sanders supporter um and everyone's trying to hit him on that his weak votes on that what's your response uh generally if someone says well like, what about bernie's vote on xyz bill well, like take the Brady Bill for example. Bernie has, you know, I don't support Bernie's voting record with that and and a bunch of other things on guns. But Bernie also never campaigned saying that that he, you know, saying that he was going to be strong on guns. He never said that he was going to do things like pass the Brady Bill and then not deliver. What he says, he delivers on. And right now, he says he's going to pass strong gun laws. And if you look at Bernie's history, you have a lot of evidence to believe him. Because again, his votes on that have not been anything that I would have done. I would not have been supportive of those votes, especially against the Brady Bill five times. But right now, he's saying he's going to do it. And when Bernie says he's going to do things, I don't, I don't believe Bernie lies to us. I think you know there are spot. There's a couple things on the record that I don't love. Certainly, a, a, a sliver of what I don't like about Biden's record, especially when it comes to the fact that Biden has damn near gaslit the country about votes before, specifically around the war. Yeah. If I had to break it down to one basic idea, it's that when Bernie says he's going to do something, I believe it, and I believe that he'll do that. And his his, his gun control policy on his website and the, the policy that his campaign has been using is almost identical to every other candidate. Every town ma basically makes a list of policies that need to be part of the Democratic platform. Almost every Democrat has a damn near identical stance on it, which is why I think that gun voting in this election is not what we should be looking at first, because again, I believe that Biden and Sanders would do pretty much the same exact thing on guns. And I believe that uh, if, you, if you just look at the way it's going to work, that should be out of the question. And I understand why people are concerned, but I also think that that concern is being very, very deliberately driven through a narrative. And, you know, that's what politics and campaigns are. They're storytelling. And Biden can tell a really interesting story where he talks about Sanders being, you know, having gun votes that people, you know, in my circles wouldn't support. But again, he's telling us he's going to do it. And I believe him. Yeah, I guess I, I would agree with that. 
I think one of the things that always really stuck out, because uh, we always hear about how Bernie was like never, oh, he was treated with kid gloves and he was never vetted and never attacked. Whereas like Hillary Clinton in 2016 literally was like, it's Bernie's fault that the Sandy Hook shooting happened. And like, so uh, I think there's probably a middle ground between going that far and also, you know, having like an honest critique of what his record is on this and also recognizing that there's a difference between like rural gun owners that he kind of represents in his state. And like, I think anyone can agree that Bernie's against uh, weapons of war being used to like massacre school children. I think probably we could all come together to agree that he says he's going to do it. He'll fucking do it. Let's go talk about everyone dying because they don't have access to health care. And all the people who, like me, are from socioeconomically privileged areas who are like, but I like my plan. Okay, great. You know, people are dying. I'm sorry that you don't like the fact that, you know, Bernie and Joe have identical gun policies. People just, people, a lot of people think, um, you, you look at the not me, us slogan, right? People mm-hmm. vote for them. Yeah. And, and I know a lot of folks who don't don't like things like medicare for all and free college because you know they they they're fine all they're fine sending their kid to florida state they're they're, you know they're not paying too much they've got florida prepaid they they like their uh they like their plan and and i understand i really do understand those people and i don't have any negative feelings towards them because i was like that not too long ago and then you meet the people who don't like their plan you meet the people who don't have that kind of access to schools and you realize that you know not everybody in the country is like you and what i think a lot of people don't realize is that applies to everyone you know people will just acknowledge the fact that there is disparity in the country and think that they're fine because they've acknowledged it but not make an effort to understand not go out and and try and understand what other people are living through. The acknowledgement is an understanding. And that's a big issue I see with a lot of voters, especially moderates. Yeah. So, I mean, we've talked a little bit about like, uh, you know, vote, Bernie's voting record. We talked about your connection to the issue. Um, but for this episode, we're trying to make the case to older voters to center Gen Z and their voting choices. So what is your argument to older voters on why they should consider a multi-generational approach while voting? Uh, You know, I think that older voters are going to vote for whatever they think works, which means that new ideas are not very exciting to them because if they're still alive at this point, that means what we've been doing works. And, you know, that's the establishment, right, is you're not dead right now, so let's do what we've always been doing. You know, you, you, it's, it, the status quo is a very, very sexy thing for a lot of people. I think I've used the word sexy three times now on this podcast, and I don't like that. <laughs> but never to describe us, which is kind of offensive, so. Yeah. And it will remain that way forever. Do better, please. <laughs> When's Clip and Steam getting on here? I'll call him sexy. Uh, he's got a ban, sorry. <laughs> he's, he's not on. Ban, lifetime ban. I really, really, really hope he's never on again. <laughs> Dude, you and me both, brother. But anyway, yeah. people love the status quo. The status quo, it's its like nostalgia's a drug. The, the, the Watchmen covers that theme exceedingly well. Whenever you get to feel like, you know, you're in the good old days, back when you saw pictures of Obama looking handsome and thought that the U.S. government was perfect, you get excited, right? I mean, man, remember when... Remember when Trump wasn't president? Yeah. <laughs> and but that's basically Biden's entire campaign is capturing that sweet nostalgia of looking in the White House and seeing somebody that is not Donald Trump. 
and sell it back to us as though it's changed. Well, no, I'm not going to pretend that they're pretending it's changed. They are not pretending there's any change coming. Mm-hmm. You might even say he's trying to make America great again. In a yeah, way. <laughs> quite literally. And he um, and I respect the Biden campaign for not pretending that they're trying to do anything new with this country. I respect the fact that they're wearing on their sleeve that they're just the same shit that has failed us constantly. But hey, you know, humanity first. I hope all of you motherfuckers remember that at the end of the day, it, what 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 if Andrew was still out there? I love Andrew so much, guys. And what Andrew gave us that no other candidate will was a president that is that reminds you of that one friend you had in college that you were really rooting for. I feel like Andrew Yang is America's really, really nice friend from college that your spouse really likes and is always happy to have over. Does that make sense? Yeah, he seemed nice. <laughs> he, just, he, he did seem nice. He seemed personable. I mean, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of like the his entire UBI plan, but... I thought he seemed like a nice guy. I mean, I like just that he didn't just seem like a regular dipshit Democratic Party guy. I mean, that's a nice change. That was a nice change from the what we're what we're currently seeing uh, as the front runner of the race. I think every single candidate out there needs to take a note from is that Andrew went up there and talked about automation, which nobody's talking about. And it's pretty hard to deny that the American economy is about to fundamentally change because a very, very hefty amount of jobs are about to go bye-bye. And, Mm -hmm. you know, tech is about to rule everything. And, I mean, you know, I forget what percentage of states have trucking as the most common job, but it's a lot of them. Trucking is not far from being a thing of the past, or at least, you know, truck drivers – So Yang went out there and talked about these things and whether or not you support universal basic income, just automation alone, you'd think it's, it's, it's undeniable. It's, I, I really look at it as something along the lines of climate change, not in the sense of urgency so much, but in the sense of you can't really deny these numbers that you're looking at. Mm-hmm. And nobody's talking about it. And that's really disappointing to me. I was hoping that when Andrew dropped one thing, one, you know, note that everybody would take from him is that we need to talk about what's about to happen to the job market. And nope, nothing. Yeah. No, yeah. I think it's good. It, candidates like him uh, are, are helpful in laying the foundation to have those broader conversations going forward. So now he's kind of helped normalize UBI. And like I said, I'm not, I, I didn't fully agree with his proposal but like now people understand the concept of it and are more like warm to it so next cycle someone can bring it up and you'll already have a base of people who know what it is and you don't have to break through that wall just like the education wall and getting people like familiar with the concept in general so they could build off of that and same thing with automation making that an electoral issue is going to be critical because that's going to decimate post-industrial areas who are already struggling and already have huge manufacturing job losses that's going to change the way we do like so many different things even like you mentioned trucking like we're gonna have autonomous trucks soon so getting people ready for that um to to help with that learning curve is essential so for that i think i think his candidacy was really helpful and he could still be up there smiling no matter where what who you support no matter who you want doing what in the polls if he was still up on that debate stage dropping thumbs ups to everybody this country (laughs) would be a much better place i'm so when when are uh, Bernie and Uncle Joe going at it again. Uh, later this week. I'm so pumped. Wait, is Tulsa going to be up there? No. 
they changed the rules to eliminate her. I didn't. So they they basically changed the rules to make it so Tulsi wouldn't be there, and changed the rules to make it sure that like Joe wouldn't get too sleepy and too yeah. he wouldn't get too uh, challenged by everybody. He wanted to make He's, it uh, extra extra easy for Uncle Joe to, to get make they're, it they're this. sitting down, and now it's a town hall. It's not a it's not a moderated debate where they go toe to toe, like just conveniently changed but it's a little bit harder now because if like you have a veteran or you have like a mother or a school teacher asking a question it's going to be a lot harder for bernie to draw those distinctions and, and highlight those contrasts between the two or even just straight up attack biden without looking like an asshole to the person who asked the question so it basically diffuses um attack modes which bernie really needs to do right now yeah yeah i think he'll do uh well I think he should just punch Joe in the stomach. No, that's a joke. That's a joke. Yeah, parody. <laughs> in the video game. Do you remember when Joe, this is honestly one of Joe's finest moments, when he was in the vice presidential debate with Paul Ryan, and he just, yeah. why is every single thing you're saying a lie? Well, I mean, talk about fucking Joe's cognitive decline, which is apparently like Russian disinformatia to even mention now. But we'll go and watch that debate and go watch him try and talk now and tell me there's not a huge fucking difference in the way that he's able to, like, make an argument or do this kind of stuff. But I know, I guess it's just like, it's just it's just Sputnik or whatever that's saying that kind of stuff. But, mm-hmm. we, you know, who, who, who am I to say? I'm, I'm currently being handed $100 bills by Putin right now. He's in my room. Ruples. Rubles, whatever. <laughs> Anyway, look, man, I think that, uh, I think that this is a shitty election and young people hate the establishment and young people, and then people are like, well, if you don't like it, don't vote. You need to go out and vote. Yeah, but voting is a deliberately hard thing that is designed for as few people to vote as possible. And it is something that people who work and go to school and have to work minimum wage jobs, study and take care of themselves are incapable of doing. And it's, look, it's an important thing to do. Everybody's got to be doing it. And I'm very, very upset with how disappointing the youth turnout numbers are. But it's, it's voting should be a lot more accessible, should be a lot easier. And at the end of the day, it's, it's hard to really want to vote when you just know that there's a, that no matter who you support, there's going to be an establishment, you know, coup against them. And we're just going to pick whoever is going to listen to the billionaire donors the most. Yeah. And it is a weird coincidence that in all these like wealthy suburbs doesn't seem to be too much of a hassle to go vote. Whereas there's like one, like the, at UCLA at the last primary, there's one polling station and this massive three, four hour wait. It's weird how that only seems to apply to young people and like uh, marginalized communities. Weird how that works. It's not only ignorant to deny that there's something going on there. It's pretty harmful. And a lot of people, yeah, a lot of people stick with whatever is best for their candidate and not what's best for progress. And that's what's gonna that's what's gonna lead to this big schism that's that's happening in the Democratic Party, going even further between the progressives and the people who are trying to be, you know, more polite Republicans. I, I guess we saw an example of that last night as well, where there was that Biden rally and some Sunrise Movement folks, uh, young people showed up protesting that, and he's just like, "Get these Bernie Bros out of here!" And it's just Biden's like long history being like, "I have no empathy. I have no empathy for young people," and it's just like. Great. This is a this is a really great electoral strategy that I'm sure is going to really pay dividends. Uh, just completely just telling this this younger generation to go fuck itself is very smart and um, 
I'm sure it's going to work out very well. Yeah, and I'm really excited, and all the young people are really excited to keep on donating money to the Democratic Party. <laughs> yes, yeah, you should be. They, they're so. I, I just texted them. They're so excited. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> love it. Love you're, it. you're doing TikToks about it. Uh, you see, I, I'm not going to lie, and I want this to stay in the podcast. I want everybody to hear this. Don't you dare cut this. <laughs> so there's this girl I really like. She wanted to send me these TikToks, and I know that should be a red flag, but everything about everything else about her is so great that I said, okay, I'll download TikTok so she can send me these. And I have seen so much concerning shit on TikTok that should be part of our political discourse right now. <laughs> I haven't seen this with my own eyes. I've heard that ISIS uses TikTok to recruit. I've heard that the, I, I know for a fact that the NRA and, and you know, all these different right-wing groups are on TikTok. And I just, I see some things that we need to be looking into. I'm telling you, we are within six months of Lindsey Graham's office having a TikTok. I shit you not. <laughs> within six months oh matt gates is going to be on tiktok oh that's going to be amazing i'd be surprised if he wasn't already um anthony wiener is going to be on tiktok just for fun <laughs> he's probably already on there <laughs> he's lurking <laughs> if he's allowed to use like internet oh god stuff, I just, I don't know I, if that's it took me a anymore. second i got it yeah he's on there <laughs> Social media is also becoming a big thing that we need to look into because of shit like TikTok. I'm so grateful to this girl that I'm interested in for putting me on this path to learning what's happening to the children. But if you want to talk about fucking Zoomer issues, let's talk about TikTok. It's looking you right in the eye, and it's a problem. Anyway, a word from our sponsors, Dollar Shave Club. What are, what are, what are the other sponsors for podcast? Another word from our other sponsors. The job thing. Uh, oh, don't, don't tell me, don't tell me. ZipRecruiter. 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 Yeah. We're trying to get, we're holding over that mattress money. Yeah, yeah. Jesus Christ. No one listens to this. No one who listens to this is going to be able to buy a new mattress. Let's just be real. Yeah. This is yeah. a non-mattress squad. Yeah. No headboards, no mattresses. I'm liter- I, don't, I don't have a mattress right now. I have a mattress cover. <laughs> yeah. That's it. <laughs> living that glamorous college life, huh? Yeah, I'm not going to complain, but I'll, I will tell you that, um... I will tell you that Columbia Students for Bernie is a great organized group of people. Um, they're very excited. I don't. I don't know if there's a Columbia Students for Joe, but I kind of want to go as like a meme. Yeah, just make your own group. Yeah, make my own group. I'm gonna make Columbia Students for Pete, and all we do is rehearse the high high hopes for a living dance. Oh hell yeah! Um, all right, I'm going on a date. Thank you for having me. <laughs> where can people Where can people find you online, Cam? Plug your. Plug I don't fucking want them to. Okay. No one follow him. No one no one do it. Call his bluff. People will comment on my Twitter and say, you shouldn't be putting this out there. It makes you look bad. Let me make something clear, and I'm going to say this on the record. I'm not asking any of you motherfuckers to follow me. <laughs> I have never once asked a single person to follow me on Twitter. That is yeah. a, a, a hole that you are digging yourself into. I'm a viciously bipolar person, and it is reflected on my Twitter account. And if you want to join me for this journey, you can. But just so you know, you're not going to have fun. So now we're joined by Isra Hersey of the U.S. Climate Strike. Isra, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. So do you want to take a second and tell the listeners um, who you are and what issues you work on and a little bit about the climate strike in general? Sure. Um, so my name is Isra Hersey. I'm 17. I'm a junior in high school. Um, and I am the co-founder and partnerships director for U.S. Youth Climate Strike. Um, essentially, 
U.S. Youth Climate Strike is just a youth climate advocacy org. Um, I helped start it late January of 2019, um, and we organized strikes. We helped um, do the initiative for the climate debate, um, as well as a few other things here and there. Um, yeah, and I guess as of right now, we're gearing up for the Earth Day strikes, which will be on Earth Day. Um, but yeah, I guess that's kind of what I've been doing for the past few months. So why? I mean, when I was 17, I was not really politically aware. Um, obviously, so you're obviously way more ahead of me than where, where, where I was in your situation. Um, but, you know, that's a, that's a monumental issue for someone to be thinking about and also taking on. So what prompted you to do this? What were some of the motivating factors? Uh, how'd you get started? Yeah, I guess for me, like I always grew up around like the the want for change. I went to protests when I was really little and I would go to campaign events and rallies and such like in elementary school. And so I always had like the like want to change the world. Um, and I was always aware of the climate crisis and like climate change um, in middle school, but I didn't really do much of it. And I didn't grow up as like a really outdoorsy kid. So for me, it was never about like the nature. Um, mm-hmm. But the more I learned about like Flint, Michigan and like Vine 3, which is happening in Minnesota right now, um, I kind of felt like it was like kind of important. And when I got into high school, I had the opportunity to join my school's green club. Um, and so I kind of just did that. And I was doing a whole bunch of other things at the exact same time. Um, and I went from my green club to doing like citywide org and work, and then I did statewide, um, and then somehow, some way, I ended up getting involved um, on the national level. But it was all by chance. I didn't actively seek for climate. I guess it kind of just happened, and I mean, I'm not definitely not mad about it. <laughs> has it been Has it been surreal for you a little bit, uh, Isra? Because I'm just trying to think back to. Um, when I was in high school, this is many, many, many years ago now, um, but it was like the late 90s, early 2000s. And you know, we always learned about climate change and we always knew about this issue. Um, but it really, I know at that time, it still felt very, very far away in the future, something that we were going to have to deal with. And it felt like there was kind of a lot of time left on the clock for you over the last few years, as it seems like that timeline is getting adjusted a little bit. And now it looks <laughs> like, you know, we're in the early stages of some of this ecological collapse that scientists have been warning about for a long time has that been like scary for you to to process at all yeah i mean it's like kind of insane to think about the amount of like how aggressive like the natural disasters have been getting in the past few years and like just like everything going on the more that i learn about it the more terrifying it gets um i guess like it was not that big of a deal like like four years ago i guess like even within that realm like i was like aware but you know not a lot of people like were like actively like doing something about it besides like the really big NGOs and like few here and there like local work but I didn't hear much about it um and so it's kind of weird to think about and also it feels like a massive ticking time bomb because as I grow up and like I race like I have kids and like all that situation it's all going to be happening during this like terrifying time of will we be able to make it before thresholds um and it's weird to think about uh, my little sister is only in second grade right now and she's supposed to graduate high school in 2030 so it's like kind of it just it doesn't feel that far away but it also does at the same time it's really weird yeah i mean that was one of the milestones i remember learning about in 
in high school. Again, also similar to Rob, it was early to mid 2000s, but it was just like, I remember 2030 and 2050 were like, we have to have some plan in place before then. So to see it, like, that's so, you know, you actually have a practical application for that understanding. Surely the people in charge are going to be able to get their act together in time. (laughs) I mean, it should be fine. (laughs) Yeah, they're doing such a great job now. Uh, So, yeah, talking, speaking of, we we are in the middle of a presidential primary and climate sometimes uh, trickles into the narrative. Uh, What do you think? Do you think the media could be doing a better job of talking about climate in a more responsible way? And also you mentioned earlier, and I do want I I would love for you to have a platform on this. You mentioned Flint being one of the first things that you realized. And that really strikes me as an issue of climate justice. Can you speak to what the difference between climate change and working on that and, and also climate justice and how people also need to center that concept, too? Yeah, I guess when I see, I mean, like, I think, like, just the, like, the national conversation has shifted a lot to where, like, we talk about climate in almost every debate, which I think is definitely a success, but, like, nowhere near where we need to be. Um, and, you know, some candidates took it upon themselves to mention um, certain places or climate justice or even mention it when it doesn't get mentioned at all. Um, but, like, I think there is, like, a really big difference of, like, fighting against climate change and, like, fighting for climate justice. And, for me, I, I think of climate justice as I would lives. Like, climate justice is not just in relation to the climate or to what happens, but it's in relation to, like, people and bodies and lives. Um, and climate justice doesn't just stay at the environment, but it also applies to, like, immigration and reproductive rights and all of these other realms because everything is intertwined. Um, and if you're fighting for climate justice you have to fight for everything else at the exact same time because the like the climate crisis is going to impact marginalized bodies first and so recognizing that when you're fighting for the crisis is something definitely important and necessary um and i do know that there's a few candidates that have definitely talked about it on the debate stage which i think is definitely really powerful um but i don't think that there's enough coverage about it and i think you know talking about the Green Deal is definitely important, but also breaking that down um, on the debate stage in when you're talking at rallies and all those things just so that the general public is aware of like what you plan to do and how that impacts their daily lives and what that actually looks like. Because I think it's super easy for people to just, you know, mention like talking points, but not never get into the like remote explanation, even at the many rallies that I've seen. Um, and I think that that's something that needs to definitely happen. But I mean, we're definitely getting somewhere compared to where we were four years ago, but we still have like a lot, a lot more to go. Well, like on that subject, are you a little bit disturbed at all by the fact that, um, you know, there's been so much, uh, youth organizing going on with the Bernie Sanders campaign and, and youth based organizations like the sunrise movement, um, endorsing Sanders for his really kind of bold climate plan and his focus on a Green New Deal and these kinds of policies. Is it disturbing for you at all to see this sort of establishment of the Democratic Party start to coalesce around Joe Biden, who, who you know, he talks about climate, but when you look at his actual climate plan, doesn't really have much of a plan in place to actually deal with the impending crisis short of just going back to the previous, uh, you know, what Obama was doing, going back to the sort of Paris emission standards, which I think most people can agree now are just nowhere near adequate to where we need to be. Is that disturbing for you at all? See that start to happen? That has like an entire like coalition of like young people who have endorsed or like youth orgs. Um, And 
I think that that like, says a lot. Like I haven't seen any other candidate have, you know, young people um, as endorsers or as people speaking at their events and such. And I think that that like, like means a lot, showcases that Bernie listens. And when it comes to Biden, um, his climate plan's a little, a little bit scary. It's a little bit dry. Um, and I think people get to just mention the fact that they have a climate plan and people are like, yeah, like that totally makes sense. But when you like look at it, there's no way that we're going to be remotely close to where we need to be, according to his climate plan. And with the entire Democratic establishment um, rallying behind Biden right now, it's getting a little bit scary with the Booker and Harris endorsements um, and, you know, this supposed impending Warren endorsement. Who knows where she's going? But um, I think that it's it's getting really scary. And also um, it says a lot because Bernie has such a grassroots support um, and majority or the biggest supporters for Biden are like very much so like Democratic establishment and like PAC money and all of these like very corrupt things. Um, And so, I mean, it's a very distinct uh, separation. And I think that it's making it even more clear. So I think that there's some hope in separating, like Bernie separating himself from the Democratic establishment. I think that that has a lot of hope there. But um, besides that, it's, it's really terrifying and it's really upsetting to see. So we talked just a little bit earlier about how, you know, just in terms of you and your sister, and it's scary to look forward. So we wanted to, like, to get your thoughts on why, you know, obviously younger voters should care about this because it impacts their future. But we're seeing as a drop off in priorities from older voters. So what what would your case be to a multi-generational voting bloc of why they should center candidates' climate plans and climate activism in general? Yeah, I mean... Even if it doesn't feel like it directly impacts you, or if it if you don't feel the impacts now, it'll probably impact your neighbor, your grandkids, um, your nieces and nephews, somebody close to you. It's going to impact definitely at least a person that we all know, and especially a person we care about. And so this climate crisis doesn't care who it's hitting, and it's going to hit a lot of people. Um, and so the way that I think about it is it's like, the more urgent the plan, the better. And so even if you can sit in your white suburban home in suburban America and the comfort of your like high middle class job, I, I think it's important to recognize that people have families and people are scared of their families. And so talking about that and talking about how it can directly impact the people that they care about and who they're raising, um, and I think that kind of changes the game for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be uh, it would be good if maybe some of these folks in their sort of living in their uh, suburban food deserts and kind of voting for the status quo to continue, if they kind of began to understand the impact of what we're of what could possibly happen when we talk about like disrupting the global uh, food supply chain and a lot of these other accompanying issues to climate change, you'd think maybe some of them would come around to the idea that maybe we need to start. Um, kind of drastically attacking this problem a little bit more. And I guess that's been the sort of disturbing thing to see uh, is is these a lot of these folks kind of in the Democratic Party uh, start to circle around a guy who's really just promising to go back to this previous status quo. Um, and when there's a whole generation of people that are getting really excited about someone else and really excited about more radical action, I kind of worry about the message that's going to be sent to to some of these young people. Um, about about how much their activism matters to the decision makers of the Democratic Party, 
uh, if things kind of keep progressing the way they're going to now. Right, exactly. I think it's super interesting to see the fact that there's like such a big divide, but also at the same time, it's like young people aren't going to the polls. And I think it's because a lot of people are getting discouraged by what's going on. Um, but also like you have all these young people who are so excited about Bernie um, and not that many excited about Biden. And I think that that in itself like says a lot about how they carry themselves and how their campaigns, I guess, function. Um, so you mentioned... Um, you mentioned Elizabeth Warren. I, I don't want to. We kind of talked about this off mic, so I don't want to get you in trouble because I know certain people have gotten a little bit mad at you uh, online for for saying certain things about Warren. But I mean, how how does it look like that's shaking out to you? Um, I kind of went I went today, and I still, for some reason, am holding out hope that that Warren kind of sees what's going on right now, and. And does uh, endorse Bernie? I guess we're kind of running late on the on the timeline for like when that's going to be actually useful or valuable. Um, but uh, like, do you think Warren is going to endorse Bernie, or or what? What do you think? Um, what do you think's going on with that? Just because it's 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 so hard for me to believe that someone who claimed to believe that America needs this kind of big structural change, which is what she's been saying for a long time. Um, whether she's going to at this one moment when when her endorsement could really swing this one way or the other possibly uh just sit back and do nothing i, I really don't want to believe that that that's going to happen but maybe that's me being overly optimistic yeah i guess the i guess in order for me to like genuinely believe she's going to endorse bernie or endorse at all she would have already done it um the primary is like tomorrow um yeah, it's on the tenth, and I'm. Just, I just don't. I just genuinely don't think she'll do it, um, at all. Because in order for it to actually have any impact, it would have to be done in enough time where the voters are aware and before the rally, so that they can announce it together. Um, so unless she does it sometime tonight, I don't think it'll happen at all, which is really upsetting because she was definitely like she ran a pretty progressive race obviously not as progressive as bernie but getting there and she's definitely not as moderate as biden and she does talk a lot about structural change and like medicare for all of these things that she believed in um and so if she did endorse biden it'd be really disappointing because she shared a lot more similarities with bernie than she did with biden and it feels like she's throwing away all of her ideals and beliefs um to get behind a candidate that just so that she could that they could do whatever they can and make sure bernie doesn't win um but yeah, I I'm not optimistic that she's going to endorse it all, which is kind of sucks because I wish she would. Yeah, well, a lot of my Twitter followers are calling me stupid for for wanting to still believe that it's a possibility, but it's something that I would love to I would love to have been wrong about. You had mentioned so the the timing too. So there's one I tweeted about this, but then deleted it because I was just getting flooded with replies, and this was uh. 2018 but when beyonce posted the picture wearing a beto hat like two hours before the polls closed it was like this is great but like yeah <laughs> no one has time to go to the polls now um so i think yeah timing does make an impact but also because this state michigan one of one of the states in the primary tomorrow uh just has been the subject of so many, you know, photo ops and talking points and platitudes because of what's happened in Flint. Um, it just, it, it kind of strikes me as like a, an issue of just 
kind of a statement by inaction by not doing anything um i feel like all the pandering about flint and your concern over the water crisis there uh just kind of rings hollow at the end because you know you had the opportunity to do it if you weren't going to do it I, I i just don't understand i don't understand the timing i don't understand the logic but i i've never found warren to be the the best decision maker in these types of like political um positioning issues uh but w- one thing i did want to ask you isra um so we talked a little bit about uh the weaknesses of of biden's platform off mic uh what what are some things that stand out to you as the strengths of sanders uh climate plan because he had the highest grade from from sunrise uh you've been supporting him tons of climate strike folks have been supporting him what are just a couple highlights without getting into like too into the weeds yeah, I guess like I don't know. I always I always say like stint debt cancellation, Medicare for all. He's a really really aggressive climate plan. I think that that's like super important. Um, and then yeah, also like free public college. He has a really cool like internet for all plan that I really like. Um, yeah, I guess those are like the first ones that come to mind. Mm-hmm. So we, we you've got. You've made the case earlier for the multi-generational argument. Um, how can people get involved? You'd mentioned earlier there's a there's an Earth Earth Day action. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about that, and then also how people can get involved in general. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So there's um, so we have a climate strike coalition of like I think like about twelve youth orgs. So it's like Sunrise, like USC's Climate Strike, like Zero Hour, a whole bunch of other orgs, um, and we're all coming together to organize the Earth Day strikes, which will be on Wednesday, April 22nd. And um, yeah, so they'll be happening like all across the country. I don't know if folks remember September 20th, that one had like millions of people across across the world. Um, and this one will be similar, except I think it's just national. Um, yeah, and in order to get involved, you can always visit um, youthclimatestrikeus.org um, or US Climate Strike on social media. Um, or you could go to strikewithus.org to find a strike near you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure to talk to you about this stuff. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. Where can people find you online? Um, <laughs> on <laughs> Twitter and Instagram at Isra, H-I-R-S-I. So Isra C. What about uh, TikTok? You want to plug your TikTok? You've got some... Oh, same username. Yeah, <laughs> at Isra Hersey. Yeah, that's something we're not on. So we'll we'll happily plug yours because it's good. I actually am on TikTok. I, I tried, tried to I tried to make a big splash on TikTok, and then after a few weeks, I was like, I'm just I'm too old to be here. <laughs> like, Who the hell is this old guy? <laughs> yeah, like get out of here. Report, get out of here, buddy. I'm like in one of those you. high school parties when there's the the weird like older person. No one knows who invited them. It's like <laughs> someone's cousin. It's like get this guy out of here. This is People awkward. Are, uh, reporting your account. I think it's like such a good platform though for like everything um like for example i'm helping i'm like making tiktoks for the brandy campaign soon and i'm like so excited because i don't know i feel like it's like so powerful and also i think all campaigns should be on the app that's so cool i did not know that but good pick (laughs) yeah thank you for listening to the insurgents Please remember to subscribe over at theinsurgents.substack.com. Find the podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. And please remember to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It's very helpful and we appreciate it a lot. But please, again, don't mention Ken Klippenstein in the review. He is banned from the show. It's a lifetime ban. 
so please do not mention him in the review. And we'll be back later this week with more of the content that you know and love. Goodbye. Goodbye.